This is Melissa Ford Locken. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan Seraph and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to to Lansing. Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Ford Locken. I'm one of the editors with the Washington Square Review. I'm here with Kevin Brown today. His story is one of the ones that's featured in our journal. And the first thing I'm going to ask you, Kevin, is tell us a little bit about your story, what was going on in your life at the time that you wrote it, and how does it fit in with your overall canon of work? Well, in terms of what was going on in my life when I wrote it, it was actually two distant periods of my life that I wrote it. It was based on something that happened to someone that was a little older than me in high school. She was paralyzed from the waist down and sort of what happens in the story at the end is kind of what happened with her. About five years later, I wrote about five pages of that and I got stuck. Then a few years later, a friend of mine, he was married to a woman who was in a car wreck and she got paralyzed from the waist down. And then he slowly started to slip away from her, like stop having anything to do with her. It's like it just changed everything for them. And that second part came about 12 or 13 years after the first five or six pages of the story. And then when I started writing um, my first novel, which I just completed, to take a break from the voice that I was in, I sat down and that first few pages, the the second part of the story that I told you about with, with my friend had happened, and it just sort of fit. It's like the two just went together in a weird sort of way. It came very quickly within a couple of days after that. So about 12 or 13 years and a couple of days, was I was able to write it. So you think it was the work in the novel that stirred something loose in your imagination that helped you bridge the two pieces together? When I wrote the first few pages, something happened in my life where I stopped writing. I just stopped for the 12 years or whatever. I just did not touch anything. I just stopped. And then one day when I wanted to start writing this novel, it just kind of came back. I was never going to write again. My plan was to be done with it. I just sat down and I wrote a page of this novel and everything started to come back. I never wanted to stop writing. It just was pouring out of me. Everything was new and fresh and and my love had sort of rekindled for it again. So you say that there's 12 years when you really didn't write anything at all? No. Did you have a different creative outlet? No. I had a sort of a, a tragedy type thing in my life that happened and Anything I do, I go like headlong into it, and and I was just going to basically destroy myself. I had gone on that bender where I wasn't going to be around to write anymore anyway. I was going to die drinking. That's what my plan was. But when I stopped, well, then it all came back, and I kind of had to learn to write again. Did that help you come up with new ways of writing since you were relearning it? Did it spark new voices, new perspectives in the writing? It did. I came to writing late. I hadn't even read a book my first year of college. Where I grew up, I didn't know of any libraries, and I didn't have any books, so I hadn't even read a full book other than what was in, like, high school. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I grew up in several places, but Memphis is, you know, and then there was a place in Texas that I moved to. It was just kind of skipping around, but they were always, we were always very poor. And um, 
you know, I played guitar and stuff in bands and I would write songs. People would ask me, have you read this guy or this guy? And I didn't, I hadn't even heard of them. Like, so you know, how did you so, get uh, started then? How did you get started writing? My first year in college, one night I, I kind of got up and wrote a little one act Christmas play that some people really liked and it was, it was really bad. But the way I, I learned storytelling was orally. My dad is the best liar on the planet. I'll be with him when something happens. And then an hour later, he's telling what happened and he'll tell it completely the way it didn't happen, but he was trying to get reactions. And then I learned editing through the way he would tell it the next time because he would leave out the stuff that didn't get a laugh and then amplify the stuff that did. So I began writing stories like you talk basically with no rules. You know, I would be jumping from first person to second to third. And so when you read this story, it is completely different the voice than what the novel is. How long into your writing career was it until you decided to submit things and see about getting published? I didn't even know that was a thing until like the first several months until I got into uh, an undergrad writing class and um, I won an undergrad award. They wanted us to submit a story and I did and it won an award and then they, they start teaching me how to do it. I didn't know what a cover letter was. I didn't know where to look. And then it was a, just a few months. And then I won a competition, like a, a writing contest. And that was my first publication. And then from then on, I, I learned how to do it. So tell us a little bit about the class that you took. Was that a creative writing class? It was. I, I was a, a marketing major and an English minor and uh, took a little writing class. And then after that class, I flipped my major and minor and I became an English major and a marketing minor. So it sounds like taking that writing class was probably the first formal education you had on the so-called rules that you were talking about. Were there other mm -hmm. ways that you learned the rules, like what you were supposed to do and what you weren't supposed to do? And then I'm also wondering, well, is there stuff that you found that was successful that people told you that you can't do that, but you did it anyway and it did work? <laughs> it kind of split people. Some would say, you can't, I mean, this you're doing this or you're doing that, and that's not really how it goes. And then others would say, that's refreshing. And the only way I kind of knew that I was not following like a protocol was when we would turn in our packets of stories and stuff, especially in grad school, you didn't put your name on it. So you'd get like five stories that we'd do that week and nobody would have their name on it. And like four of them could have been anybody, but mine would always look different on the page. So I started to see kind of how they would structure things. My flashbacks would be different if I put a flashback in or, it, you know, it'd just be so random and they had a structure to theirs, but I still, I just kept the way I was. I was finding success with it. Even like I played guitar, I, I didn't read music. I just learned by rewinding a cassette over and over. So I just kind of did that same thing with writing. I, I just swung at the heavy bag and, uh, and saw what I could do, I, I, you know. <laughs> so you finished your undergrad with a minor in marketing. Your undergrad is in English, and then you went and got an MFA. Was there a space between the undergrad graduation and applying to the MFA? Uh, no, I, it was none. Um, I applied to several. My wife at the time, she did not get accepted into those grad schools, so she did get accepted into the school we were at. So I applied there and got in. Little did I know, it's the only, at the time, it may be different now, but it was the only grad program in the country that's four years instead of two. So um, the way my graduation, my credits ran out as an undergrad was in December of uh, 2004, and I went right in by myself in January to the grad program in 2005. So the grad program that we're talking about, for anyone who's not familiar, is a MFA, a Master's in Fine Art, and so it's a specific program for people that are focused just on creative writing. Was yours mm -hmm. on fiction, poetry? Mm -hmm. Was it a mix, or was it 
focused in one particular. Fiction. Okay, only yeah. fiction. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking before we started recording, and you let me know that you'd gone back and gotten your MFA um, later in life. So you were a little bit older than the other students. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like what it's like to be in a grad program when you're older. What are the benefits? Well, I was only older by a couple of years because I had to kind of retake high school over again. I had to kind of get my credits, my grades, where I could be accepted into a bigger university. So it kind of put me behind. Like I said, I walked right out of undergrad and right into grad, but it was four years. So the benefits to me was um, I was married at the time. So the the partying, it, we, we all started to have lots of parties, you know, MFA programs. That's But I didn't have sort of the distractions of like being alone and single and at college and all that stuff. It was just work. I just wrote all the time. I was a little more mature and I didn't go into to any of my college uh, with sort of like, let's, it's, let's just time to have fun. You know, I went in really where I had let myself down in high school and didn't care. I went in focused on my grades and, and everything. So I was just a little more mature, right. better work ethic. <laughs> what about the marketing? Has that, how does that weave into your writing or doesn't it? I have a guy who lives in D.C. He used to be in a writer's group with me. He helps me with marketing myself because I was really good at, at business and marketing and stuff. And it was one of my professors who guided me into that, just as one of my professors later guided me into writing, telling me I should pursue that. So I was very good at learning about marketing and, and, and everything. But when it comes to, like, marketing myself or in my work, I just I'm not very good at it. And I have a guy who kind of helps me like stay on track of even trying to do that. But now that I, that I write, that's all I do. Okay. That's interesting because there are a lot of different ways to handle marketing and marketing yourself as a, you know, a published mm-hmm. author, because you have quite an extensive list of publications. Are there any mm-hmm. that stand out to you as personal favorites, you know, projects that you are especially connected to? In terms of like uh, literary publications and stuff like that? Yeah. Or, or I know you also had a movie, you had television. Yes, yes. Uh, those were great, and, and they kind of, like, get the most attention, but in terms of, like, satisfying or rewarding, it, it's, it could be the littlest. Uh, being asked to, to do an interview is going to be one of them because I've never been asked that. But uh, in that 12 years where I quit writing, this editor from – it's called the Canary Press in Australia. She emailed me several times, and I never answered my email, and one day I just caught it, and she said, please, please, get back with me, and she – she said, we're one of the bigger literary journals over here. And I read a story of yours about five years ago, and it just hit me. This story has stayed with me, and I just wanted to reach out and find you and see if we could republish it. Like, that came in the middle of me never wanting to write again, but it's like it was still there. You know, something was still there because there's this this lady on the other side of the rock trying to reach out to me of a story she'd read five years ago and wanting to to reprint it like that it stands out to me as something rewarding and big and a couple of uh, fellowships i won that were really big that kind of came when i needed them the most and stuff like that the, the the film was interesting because i got hired to do the film based on a that short story that i won an award with as an undergrad tell us a little background it, about the film it's a, it's called living dark it's a thriller horror film and it's sort of set in caves I was in a film class, and it was on a Wednesday night, storming really badly. It was like a three-hour class, and we had to take a test for the first half of the class, and you sit out in the hall and wait for everybody to finish and then come back in for the second half of the class, and, and 
this guy started talking to me out in the hall and we were talking about movies because we were in a film class. I told him about me writing and stuff. He said, there's this guy you really have to meet. He's a director. And after that class, we drove in the storm to, to his house and uh, we sat and we talked about films up until like two in the morning, something like that. And uh, I told him I had a story. I had that story in my car and he said he wanted to read it. And I went out and I got it and gave it to him. And I went back home, went to bed. And when I woke up, there was like 22 messages on my phone where he kept sending me stuff over and over and said, you're going to write this movie. You're the writer. So that's how that started. And then they shot it, shopped around at film festivals and won a couple of little awards. And, um, and then it was bought by a film company and it came out, we shot it in 2006 and I think they finally came out or sometime around 2013 or something like that. It's not my proudest moment. It's, it is what it is a little B horror movie. I mean, but <laughs> It was fun. I didn't have any of the software to format a script. I had never read a script, so I didn't know what I was doing, uh, just like everything, and I just sort of just went at it. And so that was – it was really – it was a unique experience, but it, it, it also, once you hand over your work, it's out of your hands. And I'm, I like to, you know, either sail the ship and be the man sailing it or be the one going down with it if it's no good. And I wasn't – I mean, I just had to give it away and let, let the chips fall where they may. So the writing process for that, how would you compare it to writing a book? It was a lot faster because we had to get so many pages a day. I mean, it had to be 15 pages a day. So perfection was out the window. It kind of taught me to let go of things and put the best you can out there and, and keep going. About 15 chapters into my second novel now, and it's really slow going. But my first novel, it just poured out. So it was almost as fast as the screenplay. So it, it just taught me to get the surface of the water first and then worry about the depth. Don't try to think too deep. Just get it out there and then you can get the depth later. So you said it came from a short story that you had. Was it hard to let go of any pieces of the short story or did you find that you were able to incorporate everything from the story into the script? Well, the movie was, it was not my story. He just read my story and, and wanted me as the writer. The story he had already, he was going to do. Like, they had an idea. They didn't have a script. Okay. So uh, once he said I was going to write it, then we started sitting down and, like, breaking the story. Like, trying to come up with the characters and everything in it. My short story was just a sample of what I, how I write and stuff. They even later bought that short story, the rights to it. And uh, we were going to turn it into a screenplay, but funding and everything like that. So it just didn't happen, but... So what are you working on right now? My second novel. Right now, I'm just I, I'm just calling it uh, The Lion in the Wine. Just It's a placeholder. It's like a, what I do with a lot of character names until the names, like a name really grabs me, I put placeholders in. So it could be my dad's in one, my mom, my friends. You know? So the, the Lion in the Wine was just one that uh, I had that I just kind of put on there to have a folder name. And with my stories, you'll see that too. Sometimes it's got the most absurd titles because I, I just couldn't come up with one, and I'll put something for fun on there, and it sticks. I just leave it. So <laughs> You want to uh, tell us a little bit about what the novel is about, the one that you're working on? Uh, it's about a little small town that's sort of run by rich farmers. It's sort of a dying town. And uh, years ago in the, like, 1920, 1919, there was a, a, something really bad happened that pitted several of the townspeople against each other. So now something bad has happened again, and a lot of those same families, you know, the ancestors that were against each other, they become a team against the ones who actually did it the first time, the family line that actually started the thing the first time. It's sort of like uh, how lies and propaganda will pit 
people against each other to redirect attention from what this group is doing to stay, to get greedy and to keep things the way they are, to manipulate. Well, this time something's happened where that doesn't work. And who used to be the enemies, now they are the, the team. So it's almost like payback for, uh, uh, you know, 70 years in the making because it's set around the late 70s. I never really give a date or a time period to any of my stories or anything, like my first novel. It's in 1991, but I never said it. I just put, like, you know, it's it's the year that uh, Nirvana gets popular. So by that, you know, people will get about what year it is. So I, I never really put a, a time. I don't put, like, ages on people. Uh, like in the story that you guys took, it, there there's no age, but you get, like, you know, time passing and stuff. And, and, you know, I just try to do things a little bit differently than what I've read before. Yeah, our story definitely has some pop culture references that, you know, mm-hmm. readers could clue into. And if they don't aren't familiar with those particular references, it doesn't take away from the story at all. You know, they would get the sense that that was a thing and, you know, that, that works that way. If somebody was new to you and they wanted to read one or two of your works, what one or two would you suggest they start with? Of course, the one that's in our journal would be one of them. Yeah, yeah. In yes. addition uh-huh. to those. It, it's it's kind of weird because I have to remember that that one's in my group of stories now because it wasn't for so long. There's one that I did it in 2004 called One Life. And my wife was from Hong Kong and I went over there with her right after our wedding around the time of SARS. So everybody was wearing masks. So now when you look back at this, I'm talking about, and it's like years ahead of the uh, coronavirus that we, we've come to know and loathe. Um, but yeah, I was talking about a guy whose wife died of SARS in Hong Kong and he goes back and, and he is literally going around in these crowded areas and scraping surfaces and licking germs, trying to die of SARS so he can, however he dies, he's in the same afterlife as her because in her belief, if you die the same way, you go to the same afterlife. So he's trying to die of SARS. And then another one called Birthday Licks about a uh, a kid who was, uh, when his mom had tried to have him aborted and it didn't take and he came out missing one arm, but she died in childbirth. And every year on his birthday, his dad blames him and gives him birthday licks. He tortures him in some way. And it's, he's, it's after he's actually gotten revenge on his father and he's in a police station and he's being asked all these questions and he's trying to out of guilt, trying to show that he's guilty so he can go to jail for the rest of his life. And she's telling him, it's like a reverse interrogation, basically saying, you didn't do anything wrong. They've seen the pictures of these birthday licks and all these fractured bones and burns and cuts and stuff. And it's just him trying to come to grips with the guilty feels of what's happened. That one was taken by a place that um, was raising money for child child abuse. And they really told me that they sat around a big table when they read it and they, they were, you know, crying and stuff. And so that one was one that I was very proud of. Yeah, it's definitely a lot for people to think about and reflect on with those intense, darker themes, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Any last thoughts that you have for us? And if you want to invite people to follow you on social media or mention your website? Uh, Yes, the website is, it's kevinnovalina.com. I'm in the process of changing my last name from Brown to Novalina. Nova being my second daughter and Lena being my first. And it's also a town I used in my first book. So I'm changing my last name to Novalina. So it's kevinnovalina.com is is my uh website and then kevin novelina on twitter i've only sent one tweet and I, um and an author that uh, i tweeted about actually joined me or uh, follows me or whatever it's called and liked it so that was kind of neat I, I just as like i said i'm not very good at marketing and he, this is 
the guy in DC sort of pushing me to get out of my comfort zone and, and, you know, let's hope that some people listening will (laughs) come and find you on Twitter and follow you. That'd be great. I mean, I'm, I'm open to anybody ever wants to ask questions or anything like I'm not the brightest at what we're talking about, but I know I've got a lot of experience and, you know, I do a writer's group now and, and, uh, people in my group, they wanted to get published and I had been publishing a lot. So they wanted to, to, to join me in a group and they've all started to publish and win awards and stuff. So we, we, you know, I, I'll give the best advice I can on stuff. I know it's when I started, I always wanted to ask that kind of thing and nobody wanted to ever talk about it. So. All right. That's beautiful. And now people know they can come find you on Twitter and ask you questions and you'll be happy to answer them. I'll I'll give it my best. Awesome. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot for joining us today and for chatting and we wish you well and hope that you'll send us some more stuff. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air. Where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's literary journal, The Washington Square Review. A publication featuring writers in the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu slash WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College Performing Arts features several events and presentations throughout the year. Find more information by visiting lcc.edu slash showinfo. Founded in 1957, LCC has addressed the needs of Michigan industries through education for more than 65 years. Anchored by the downtown campus located in the heart of Lansing, LCC serves mid-Michigan communities with additional campuses in Delta Township, East Lansing, and Livingston County. The college offers more than 200 degrees and certificate programs and is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Those interested in learning more about LCC may visit lcc.edu slash youbelong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Welcome to The Safety Plan, the show where I cover the latest cyber scam and how to avoid it on LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. I'm Paul Schwartz, and I'm happy that you are here. Let's do this. Ah, this morning, my daughter was singing um, this song by Fleetwood Mac uh, called Landslide. And now the song is stuck in my head. I guarantee you've heard of it. I took my love and I took it down. 
I climbed a mountain and I turned around and I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills till the landslide brought me down. Well, okay, but it's okay. So my kid was singing it with cybersecurity words. It went something like this. I started my computer, but it was locked. And I saw ransomware and it was quickly encrypting till the antivirus stopped the malware. <laughs> well, geez. Uh, obviously, the college has allowed me budgetless artistic freedom on this show, and I will take advantage of that position. So, welcome to the Safety Plan Show. Here's the format I will describe a real world cyber scam like phishing or malware, identity theft, a Nigerian print scheme, IRS imposter scam, scareware, one of the many, many, many other cyber scams, and I will then explain why it could happen to you. And finally, I will explain how to protect yourself so it doesn't happen to you. So why should you listen to the safety plan episodes? First, as a leader, I want to share my cybersecurity knowledge with you so that you, that you can hopefully grow, learn and grow and become inspired by it. Second, a community knowledgeable on cyber scams will not fall for them in the future. And third, if people start practicing good cyber practices in their lives and at home, then they practice those same skills at work, which makes your business or company or local community college more secure. Win, win, and win. So I am Paul Schwartz. I work at Lansing Community College as the Director of Information Security. I coordinate security issues for the college, things like data breach coordination, account compromise investigations, vulnerability scanning of our network, reviewing emails for legitimacy, implementing projects to improve the college security, proactive phishing our employees and training them in on security and many, many other security tests. I've worked in cybersecurity for 28 years, including 20 years in the Air Force before ending up at Lansing Community College. I drive a vehicle with doors that close with the click of a button, so people think I know stuff, which proves I am smart. SM. RT smart. Okay, it's now time for the cyber scarily roundup. Let's focus on today's topic, how to read website addresses. Fish emails usually contain links to websites that contain malware or ask you for your credentials. The links are often hidden behind welcoming text or images, such as a click here button that will encourage you to click on that link. It's very easy to, to make the text say one thing but the link to point somewhere else. Before opening any email link or website link, the first step is to hover your mouse over the image or the link without clicking on it. Now this will reveal a pop-up box that will reveal the true website that it will go to. Let's look at two um, you know, website addresses. We call those embedded URLs. The URL stands for uniform resource locator. A URL is nothing more than the address to a given unique resource on the web. In this example I'm going to talk about, we have two buttons that say click here, but behind them are two different website addresses. Although these two links or these two pictures of click here look exactly the same, one could lead to a legitimate site, say like LCCEDU, while the other one could lead to someplace different. And, you know, in my example, it goes to malware.com, so a bad site. And so even though that, say, the text or the picture looks exactly the same behind it, that, that address, that's where it gets uh, tricky. Okay, so this goes to show you that the text or picture on your computer screen has nothing to do with where that embedded link 
leads. If it's a phishing email, the visible text or picture will be just part of the scam. It's there to fool you. So ignore it and find the real target of the link. Okay, so now that you've hovered over that picture or that text and it brings up that little pop-up box that gives you the true address of the link, the next step is to be able to tell if it's a legitimate destination web address from a, you know, a fake one using this rule, the second to last dot and first slash rule. Okay, second to last dot and first slash rule. So what this means is when you look at that URL or that web address, ignore anything that comes before the second to last dot in the web address when reading it from right to left from the first slash and ignore whatever comes after that first slash. Uh, in the address. Okay, so let's let's talk through this address. Um, it starts with HTTPS. Now that stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol. And that's just the communication protocol that goes between your browser and that web server to push up and bring down the website. Now here it is, colon slash slash www.google.com slash search Fleetwood Mac landslide lyrics, which is what I look for to get the lyrics to the Fleetwood Mac song. Okay, so that's the URL. Now the Second to last dot would be that dot google.com. So that dot between www and Google, that's the dot. And then the first single slash would be after www.google.com slash and then search Fleetwood Mac so, so, so forth. So that's the demarcation here that we're going to look for to identify the root domain name. Okay, and that's the real address. Criminals can't modify that root domain name. And that's what comes after the second to last dot, but before the first slash. It is the only part of the website address that scammers can't change. So they could change stuff before and stuff after it, but that root domain name cannot be changed. And so that's the way to establish whether it's legit or not. So in my example, it's google.com. And simply the root domain of Walmart is walmart.com and Facebook is Facebook. Book.com and at Lansing Community College, it's lcc.edu. Criminals try to disguise their own scam site as a legitimate one by creating similarly named domains and hoping that it's good enough to fool you. So, in my example, instead of google.com, it might be google.com.org or google.co or google.web, hoping to trick you into thinking that you're actually going to google.com. So it's your job to understand which site you're going to. And if you don't know the real site you're going to, what I recommend is going to just coincidentally a search engine like google.com and searching for the name, say Pepsi. And, and in the search results, it'll show you the legitimate site, which is probably pepsi.com. And so then you would know, well, when I go to Pepsi every time, it's not pepsi.web or pepsi.co or pepsi.whatever. Um, and so you'll be able to recognize the true root domain and know you're going to legitimate address from a fake one. Say if a fish got sent to you, pretending to be a promotion card from Pepsi, giving you a free case of Pepsi-Cola, uh, but the link says it goes to pepsi.gov, that would be a red flag to know not to click on that link and potentially get uh, you know, malware compromise or account compromise. For criminals, it's not difficult to set up a fake web address. For only a few dollars, anyone can register an unused domain name in a matter of minutes. Merely having a website address that looks like a real company's name is no guarantee at all. If you have any doubt as to the authenticity of a web address, the best course of action is to not open the link by clicking on it in an email, but find the site in a browser through a bookmark or a separate Google search for the real site. If you are unsure of the link, 
You can scan the link for safety by right-clicking on the link and selecting Copy Hyperlink, and then opening up a browser and going to virustotal.com or hybrid-analysis.com in that browser, and then paste the link into those for a review. Now, those sites uh, run the URL or that website address through a whole bunch of different antivirus products and a whole bunch of different um, scanning vulnerability type um, analysis and lets you know whether that link is malicious uh, or phishing or suspicious or if it's legitimate. All right. Well, that's a wrap of today's safety plan episode. If you have any questions or have been a victim of a cyber scam, tell me about it by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu. Or you can find more info and past episodes of the safety plan on the internet at lcc.edu connect. This episode of the safety plan was recorded by Paul Schwartz in the TLC Tower in downtown Lansing Community College and produced by Lane Ingram and engineered by Big D Dedalian. I'm Paul Schwartz, and this is LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. So long. Examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship since 2016. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason Public School students. These selected students are chosen by the Mason Public Schools at the end of the fifth grade and then become a Mason Promise Scholarship through an induction ceremony. Over the course of the next six years, these students receive mentoring and support as well as introduction to career possibilities through the Pathway Program. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu hope. The Lansing Community College Foundation provides scholarships that make education possible, change students' lives, and uplift our community. Students may apply for scholarships November 1st through January 31st. Learn more at lcc.edu scholarships. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. You're listening to LCC Alumni Stories, a show dedicated to highlighting the amazing alumni of Lansing Community College. I'm Steve Robinson, president of LCC, and on each episode, I have the awesome privilege of getting to know one of our many inspiring alums and hearing about their experiences at and since leaving LCC. The LCC alumni community is expansive and far-reaching. They're an incredibly diverse group of people representative of all walks of life, working in hundreds of industries across the country. LCC Alumni Stories shines a bright light on alumni who make positive contributions to their communities and showcases those who have overcome obstacles and barriers to achieve academic and personal success. These are their dynamic stories. My guest today is Chelsea Van. She attended LCC as an international student from 1998 to 2001. Chelsea currently works as an academic success coach at LCC. 
Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Hi, thank you, Dr. Robinson, and thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you, and uh, it's really wonderful to have you on the show, and I want to hear about your experience as a student, particularly as an international student, but before we get to your alumni story, tell me a little bit about what you do here at LCC. You are an academic success coach, right? Yes, I am. How long have you had that job? I have that job since day one. I'm very fortunate to be selected on a f for the first five um, hiring in, on, and so I start on February the 6th, um, 2017, and the five of us, I think, now Sarah and I are the two original left. But That's fantastic. So uh, for our listeners, our Academic Success Coach program is a few years old, but you were one of the very first, so one of the first five. Yes, I am. That's great, the original five. <laughs> So you've been with our academic success coaching program from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about how it's changed over the last five years or so. The change is amazing. Mm -hmm. I witnessed a transformation of this program from scratch. Like we start from scratch, basically. Right. Um, and we aim to be a national model mm -hmm. um, for all community colleges. So it is amazing transformation from a team building, putting more staff in up to 18 coaches. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so we have, we're at 18 coaches right now. Because there's a movement of um, staff resigning to go to another university or they have opportunity and whatnot. But 18 coaches, two managers, and a director. Right. And so you, you got to be there from the ground floor. You've seen it um, develop over time. Tell me about the impact of this program. What kinds of things do you and your colleagues do for our students? The impact, I think it's, it's very significant mm -hmm. because every single student that builds a relationship with coaches and faculty members as well, everyone told us that they are so glad that they have us here mm -hmm. to be a focal contact person for students, but also a liaison between different departments. So we are be able to provide students with wrap-up service and student, many students, especially international student, global student community keep telling me like, I am so glad you're here to help me through the transition. And I love that part. That's a population, special population that I'm dealing with. So mm -hmm. um, international student and global student, but all the liberal arts student as well was oh. under my, my, um, um, helping taking care of them. Right. So I heard you say two things. One is that you provide focus for students, right? I'm assuming that's about their goals, the things they want yes. to achieve here. But then you also use this important word liaison. You get to help that student connect with all the various pieces and parts of LCC, right? Because we're a big organization, lots of little um, departments and moving parts. You help kind of smooth that out for students, don't you? Yes, yes, we do. We help student advocate for themselves, but also um, teach students not only just academic skill building, accountability, but also help them to um, ask for what they need, you know, be an advocate um, for themselves. And I would say to many students, like, if you run into any issue or barrier on campus or off campus, if you think of me, I think I'm, it's, it's the program is very successful because I will help you navigate on campus and also off campus um, resources. And I'll be your cheerleader. I can be your accountability partner to make sure that you reach your potential and academic goal. 
I love all of that. And, and one thing I want to amplify from what you just said, it sounds like you directly help students with these things, but maybe more than that is you help them build capacity to do these things on their own. Yes, we do. I think because um, from my experience, I also work for uh, CAMWA, uh, Michigan Works. Oh, um, yeah, so, CAMWA, right? Yes. That's it, C-A-M-W-S. Capital Area Michigan Works. I've, I've been here for two years, but I'm still <laughs> learning all our acronyms, right? Yes. CAMWA. So I I sometimes help students. We have a career services center, but I sometimes also take an opportunity to help students with employability, mm-hmm. um, not just academic skill, but life skills sometimes if they need it, and be a listening ears. And make them feel comfortable. And once they are in LCC, join the program, join our college, um, I want to make them feel comfortable and belong. So I think that's important. I think it's important, too. That's our tagline, right? You belong here. Yes. So you mentioned that one of the student populations you work with is international global students. That's probably a good transition to talking about your story. You came to LCC as an international student in 1998? Yes. Yeah, tell me that story. How did you come to LCC? Where did you come from? And what was that like for you? I um, originally came from Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And I worked for um, the U.S. government before I came here called United States Agency for International Development. Okay. That's how I um, make connection to my former boss, where she would like to help support women to empower women so she she said you need to um study and take the test TOEFL test and try to study abroad go to the U.S. and be an international student there so I did that and she sponsored and so I came in in the fall 1998 to LCC I started my first semester at LCC as an international student. So you worked for USAID, right? That's I, the, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. And did you come straight to Michigan or were you in a different part of the country coming uh, from Phnom Penh? I came, actually, yes. I came first to Houston, Texas. Really? I have an uncle and aunt that um, migrate um, after the genocide um, in the 80s to Houston. So they live in Katy, actually, Katy, Texas, 45 minutes outside of Houston. Right. And I was there for two semesters on my intensive English. And apparently uh, things didn't work out. Um, they couldn't support. So I, I called up my former boss, uh, Farron, said I didn't want to return home and I would like to pursue my higher education. How And how would I do that? Um, they said, don't worry, just come to Lansing, Michigan, go to LCC and look for a job and we'll really? help you out. So they put me up, provide me room and board until I complete my associate degree at LCC and also earn my bachelor from Michigan State. That is fantastic. And and I want to hear more about that. You did mention, though, the very, very tumultuous and terrible times in your in your home country, right? So I'm am 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 I right in assuming that the the genocide and the tragedy that happened in in Cambodia had something to do with you relocating to the United States where um, was was it after that that you and your family yes. came? Yes, the um, the Khmer Rouge um, genocide took over right um, April nineteen ninety seventy five, mm-hmm. and it lasted until January nineteen seventy nine. That's when everything demolished. We returned to year zero. No, I think we have like ten professor left. 
for the whole country. It was a purge of, it, of that yes, society. A society, wasn't it? academic, and all of that. So that's when I lost my only brother and my father and my mother with four daughters after oh, the Chelsea, war. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's I, okay. Yeah, and, and I, I know that's part of your story. I'm sorry to dwell on it, but uh, it, it seems that you uh, coming here was a real transformation for, for you, right? After yes. that, after the almost unimaginable tragedy of, yes. of, what, of what happened in the 70s. Um, so so you, first you come to Texas, and then there's great opportunity for you in Lansing. Yes. Um, tell me about your first days here. What was it like as an international student uh, here when you arrived in, in, in the late 90s? It was very exciting. Okay. It was very exciting. I remember when the plane landed in Houston was like, wow, this is America. Even at night, it looked kind of excited. So, um, yes, and it's like, and before I know it, wow, it's it's as hot as Houston, as hot as Cambodia. But um, I love my classes that um, in um, like community Houston Community College mm -hmm. as well that I attended, and I love those classes. And Houston uh, Community College is big. Yes. I just, just this last weekend, I, I, this last week I was at a conference. I spent most of it with the current chancellor of Houston Community College. Oh. He told me that at one point they had uh, well over 100,000 students. Wow. I mean, it, it, far in excess of that. It's a huge system. So you started taking classes there, but then you relocated to Lansing. I relocated to Lansing. Um, I didn't know anything about the family I'm about to live with and also know nothing about Michigan weather. So I'm in a nice surprise when it's snow. I've never seen snow in my life. So Very different from Cambodia and Very Houston. Very different and Houston. Mm -hmm. So, but I was so excited. So my host parent, Roberta, she brought me the next week to LCC and register and then look for a job right away. So I found a job to work for a student affairs office with the dean's office as a student employee. So you worked here in I addition worked. to going to yes, school. I that, worked. That's a wonderful story. So Thank what you. did you study and what was your associate's degree in? I was not sure what I would like to do. So I was I was just tested out like what I know what I would like for a bachelor degree. But uh, for an associate, I was like, I just need to take all the classes and see if I can transfer to Michigan State University. Right. So mm -hmm. um, after a year of language study and also two years, I received my associate degree and um, it's undecided at that time. It should okay. be liberal arts, but it's undecided okay. at that time. So it's like transfer. a general studies general pathway, study. yes? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And uh, what was the transition like, your transfer experience from here to Michigan State? It was um, a little bit of a shock for the classroom and the auditorium size from yeah. a one-on-one. -on -one, I took um, classes in those things. We're, I'm also an alum of Michigan State. Big, big lecture halls, hundreds of people, right? Yes, yes. So that must have been different. It was, it was different. And but the James Madison College for um, the university, mm -hmm. um, it's small enough. I don't live in a dorm like other students, so I don't really build connection there. But I have. Um, a community at the Writing Center because before I leave LCC, I also work at the Writing Center with Jill Reckland. Yeah. So I transferred to the Writing Center at MSU, and I have another community and friend there. So I spend a lot of time hanging out at the Writing Center and provide tutoring. 
quit writing. We have that in common. Not, not only do I know Professor Reglin really well, we worked together at another community college where I worked at the Writing Center. And I, when I was a student at Michigan State, I made use of the Writing Center as well. So not only did I work in one, I, I used one. So we have that in common. So um, so your, uh, your bachelor's is James Madison? Yes. I, what a great place. You. I received a bachelor in international relations in, I think, their work from USAID and seven years of nonprofit organization before I joined USAID. I worked for seven years after my high school in 1990. So it provided me the foundation and also allowed me to want to be in that profession. Right. Well, and I can I can picture because I had lots of friends uh, at James Madison. I actually had a writing gig over there in one of the research institutes when I was a grad student, you must have been a real source of knowledge among your students, right? Because a lot of the James Madison students are probably, have, have you know, maybe from, you know, the United States, from Michigan, have a, have a pretty standard background, tra- traditional college age, right? And you come to an international studies program with not just an international background, but a really comprehensive one, having worked at USAID and and made your journey from Cambodia to here. Did you did you find your professors to be very interested in your background? Yes, we have interesting this class discussions um, because I think one of the uh, minors, I think I have a minor in um, political and social economic development in the third world, or. I shouldn't call it the third world yeah, in South Asia, a, we, developing yeah, country, right. developing or country, developing country. We'd have to ask our faculty what the what the appropriate term is now, but I know what you're talking about I mean, yes. the developing world or, or, or in that part of the world, the less developed country. There we go. So mm-hmm. it was we, we create good good debate, good discussion in class. So I really enjoy my time there. It's it's difficult. Um, it's challenging for me because the language skill. I have to say sometimes I pull an all nighter writing essays for for my classes uh-huh. or exit papers and stuff like that. But it's a well of knowledge, all the professor around there too. Um, and I can go back and talk a little bit about my experience, actually, um, the three year at LCC as well, if you'd like to. Yeah, I, w- I would, that. I would. So, But it sounds like on the language front that you made use of the writing center at both LCC and Michigan State. Talk to me a little bit about those years at LCC, though. So, um, you know, this is before you transfer to James Madison. Uh, what was it like being a student? What kind of uh, support and help did you get here to help you be successful as an international student? It is, it is amazing. It was amazing support. I, I wouldn't make it to MSU if I did not have the support of LCC community and my host family. Mm-hmm. I'm an also a recipient of um, the Foundation Scholarship. Excellent. So I'm grateful for that. And all the professors at LCC that I um, take classes from, they they care. Yes. So I remember my first year, I can list all my uh, professors for reading and writing classes, like uh, Professor Steve Robbins, uh, Hopkins, um, Dr. Alan Mars, and Trudy Carpenter is one of the special instructors for my uh, confidential in writing class. That's where I produce a piece where I submit it. She encouraged me to submit it for a competition. That's how it got published in the college textbook writing. Wait a minute. We need to talk about that. So one of your professors encouraged you to enter a writing competition. Yes. Right. And you shared with me that when you were an LCC student that I, I'm imagining that writing wasn't 
the the most comfortable that you did not probably did not view it as a strength of yours right no no, no. so talk to me about this writing contest what did your professor encourage you to do and i'd love to hear the story i love it it's it's like a second semester and the very first basic writing class so i wrote a piece about the challenges i've overcome to come to the us to earn a higher education uh-huh. so when trudy read the piece she encouraged me, she cared, she encouraged me to put into publication, to compete for publication with the Thompson Press Foundations, okay. where they publish a couple of versions of it. And um, so I did, and I won a second prize for that. And they gave, I think it's a lot at that time, for $1,500 toward scholarship towards school. That is a good, that's yes. a great writing award. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. And they also gave you like a royalty, you call it, right? Mm-hmm. Like when sure. they publish, yeah. um, every time they publish, they will give you a little bit of money on the side for that. That's because you're a published author. That's <laughs> real you. work that you did. I'm so grateful for her. And the next writing class also, um, writing 121 and 131. 132, which mm-hmm. is a um, honor composition with uh, Professor Tim Mengs, also amazing. But mm-hmm. Trudy cares so much, not just encouraged me to apply, so happy when I won it. And I think it's her father, I'm not sure, also provides scholarship money, is anonymous. So I am so thankful. So that is like a full support from many instructors, um, colleagues that I build a relationship with. That's how I came back to work here. It's it's amazing. I, I love hearing stories like that. And there are a couple of things that really kind of warm my heart about what you shared with me. First is at any community college, but particularly LCC, you encounter these very caring people, caring faculty, caring staff. And you, it, it sounds like you weren't, you weren't even done listing people, right? You had all these folks who helped you out and they made a real difference in your life. They do, like Professor Jill Recklin was in. I was introduced to her by um, my writing instructor, mm-hmm. so that's how I connected and work at the writing center. When the grade that you're in, and you can compete to apply for the writing center, so that's where I work and also build a relationship with her, okay. and we become colleague and friend. That's I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> so the the one thing I would tell you, and I know you've already figured this out, is uh, one of the one of the most moving ways to pay tribute or to give thanks to, to folks who help you out like that is to do amazing work like you're doing. I know for Thank a fact you. that all these professors and staff members that you talked about, their very favorite thing is seeing you grow and develop and achieve your goals. And boy, you sure have done that. So I'm sure I'm sure that you've made them very happy. But I wanted to t- come back to that colleague piece. Not only did you um, benefit from their help and develop and succeed, but you came back and you're one of their colleagues now. What's it like to work alongside these folks who helped you get where you are today? It's exciting and, and such an honor. When I came back, I think that's how I also re- told students many times that during your time here, be active, get involved. If you work on campus, it's an opportunity to networking and build relationship. Mm-hmm. You never know. One day you will be able to you know, come back and, and re- rejoin the organization or the institution. So, um, yes, so I came back um, in 2014, May, mm-hmm. 
and I worked for Professor Jeraclin again in the Writing Center Excellent. for almost a year before I joined the Learning Commons um, to be a professional tutor for their reading, writing, and ESOL classes. Wow. Well, we are so glad you're back, and it's a Thank wonderful, you. wonderful story. You know, before we end our conversation, Chelsea, you know, as we, as we move through this phase of the pandemic, one of the things that a number of us are thinking about is ways to attract students who wouldn't necessarily come to LCC. And I wonder what your thoughts are about um, how we can be supportive of and attractive to international students. You have a special lens on this, given your own experience. What kinds of things do we need to make sure we're doing to be attractive to international students? I, I love the question, and I think we have many opportunity to uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. um, just um, a little bit of marketing also it helps. Okay. Um, we once the campus open fully again, mm -hmm. um, anything with international club that uh, invites student to join and share the experience with the local student. Um, but also we are smaller campus, like smaller institution compared to a four-year university. So we provide a one-on-one -on -one closer, like type kind of education that um, not, they are not just a number. Right. So, and I think the price, you can't beat community college for the price that you start and right. here. And it's a great place to transfer to, um, take all the classes you want and then transfer to at a university with a decent cost. So one of the things I hear you saying is that we should probably toot our own horn about some things that we yes. already have going for us, yes. right? Smaller class size, uh, very uh, you know superior wraparound services, yes. um, but also um, something that's maybe a little more informal and a little smaller than a big research university. Yes, that's what we do. We have I I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything on my journey here. And I would tell student, international student that I work with, like if they were talking about, I would like my brother and sister and my friend to attend. I'm like, yes, this is the right, this is the right move. Um, please do, from my experience, you benefit greatly. Um, great education, great quality education with professors and instructors that care so much about you, not just you know, you're not just a number, but they care not just about your academic, but they want to see you grow and be um, successful um, on your endeavor. Yeah, and we do. We really, really do. And I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, in the coming years, uh, I'm very interested to see how LCC can grow and develop in these areas, uh, particularly with international students, either attracting international students here um, or providing international study away, study abroad programs for existing students. And then in, in another way, I think it's important that we have activities uh, about our global context and our international um, situation or context for all students yes. so that we can see that there is a world outside of Lansing Community College. Definitely, definitely. It's a cultural exchange. It's a huge uh, benefit. Well, speaking of huge benefit, we benefit hugely from you being here, Chelsea. So Thank not you. only because of your international experience, but because of your story. I really think that that your journey of from from Cambodia to Houston to Lansing and LCC and then on to Michigan State 
that really helps our students. So I really want to say thank you for all that you do for our students and for coming back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah. LCC Alumni Stories is recorded, engineered, and produced by Steve Robinson on LCC's downtown campus. The soundtrack is licensed through DeWolf Music and was performed by Ian McCanty. Thanks for listening. Tune into future episodes and to learn more about what our alumni have been up to. If you're an LCC alum and you want to share your story, send me an email at steve.robinson at lcc.edu. Until next time, keep learning. This has been LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.